Our reading is from 2 Peter chapter 3. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destructions of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it's a great privilege to be speaking to you uh, this evening on an important, though hotly contested, topic as the environment. And let's face it, the environment is everywhere. Literally, it's everywhere. Uh, but it is everywhere in the news, stories, headlines, etc. But I'll be perfectly honest, I'll, I didn't see World Snooker Championships being brought to its knees, as happened this last week, with the orange powder explosion that took place on Table 1 as a Just uh, Stop Oil campaigner let go of the, the, the orange powder. Nor did I see the renaming of the Brecon Beacons to Banai Brechainiog uh, in order to eliminate any reference to such uncarbon neutral behaviour as burning of beacons. Uh, much to the eye roll of uh, locals and commentators in the area. It doesn't chime well with Wales's commitment to net zero. Now, I wonder how you react to those kinds of stories when you hear them. I wonder how you react and think about the whole issue of the environment and climate change more widely, stepping back a bit. Um, I can concede that things can get fairly political, and uh, scientific quite quickly. And we're not going to do that, uh, at least in this session now. That's not the purpose. But let's just quickly get up to some speed with a few relatively uncontroversial facts and figures. So, the planet is warming. It took many thousands of years for the Earth's temperature to rise by half a degree Celsius. But in the last 100 years alone, it's gone up by one degree. Now, that has resulted in the melting of polar ice caps and therefore the rising of sea levels. And uh, we're told that by 2100, it's estimated that the world's oceans will have risen by one meter. 
which will be an annoyance to those who have a beach holiday at the seaside, but it threatens to devastate whole countries like Bangladesh, where currently 10 million people live within the one-metre contour of the coastline. Biodiversity is plummeting. Around 1.2 million species of plants and animals have been so far identified by scientists. And this vast diversity is not just a luxury or an interest of the biologists, but along with our water and land and air, form a rich ecosystem that enables sustainable life. But according to the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, one in four species is at risk of extinction in some way. There's widespread deforestation. The Amazonian rainforest contains a staggering half of the world's living species, which is bewildering just to think about. And it acts as an enormous carbon sponge, absorbing vast quantities of CO2, converting into oxygen for us animals and humans to breathe. However, between 2001-2019, Brazil lost 140 million acres of rainforest which is an area larger than the size of Spain, to deforestation. And in 2019 alone, an entire football field worth of rainforest was lost to the planet every six seconds, all the way through the year. And then don't forget, of course, plastic pollution, which blights our oceans every minute of every day around the clock the equivalent to a lorry load of plastic is dumped into our seas. And uh, if the current rates continue, by 2050, there will be more plastic by weight in all the world's oceans than fish, if current rates continue. Now, how are you feeling right now? Still sitting comfortably? I imagine that uh, Christians will respond in different ways to this topic. And there are two equal and opposite reactions to this. Uh, the first response is what we might call the panicked response. Uh, the panicked response. This is where all things green become all that matters. And it's a reaction that results in uh, blocking ambulances from traveling down the road and throwing orange powder on snooker tables. Now, the day after the devastating fire at Notre Dame four years ago, this is what Greta Thunberg said at the European Parliament in Strasbourg. Quotes, my name is Greta Thunberg. I'm 18, um, I'm 16 years old, I come from Sweden. And I want you to panic. I want you to act as if your house was on fire. Because it is. Notre Dame will be rebuilt. I hope that its foundations are strong. I hope that our foundations are even stronger, but I fear they are not. Disaster is imminent. Something needs to be done. It needs to be done now. We're in make or break, change or die territory. Sound the fire alarm. Make the alert go off on our phones. The panicked response. The opposite reaction is the passive response. The passive response. Uh, this is where... If anything environmental gets raised, we simply shrug our shoulders, keep our head down, uh, maybe even roll our eyes like the renaming of the Brecon Beacons. But basically, we carry on with life as is. And life becomes a little bit like a real-life 
green screen, like the ones used in TV studios, you know, the ones where we mentally snip out anything that is approximating to green, and we don't engage with it, we ignore it, it's not there. And we might do that for, well, a number of reasons. Perhaps we've grown weary of the alarmist rhetoric that we keep hearing night and day. So-called climate change fatigue has just worn us down and we've zoned out. Maybe we never zoned in in the first place and uh, we think that the world has got bigger problems to contend with. All this climate change seems a little bit like middle class so-called white guilt, thank you very much, when uh, most people in the world are struggling to feed their families and access running water. Forget this chat of green issues. Are they really such a priority? Maybe you can test some of the science in the first place, the passive response. I want to suggest that the Bible suggests a third response. Not panic, not passivity, but prudence. The prudent response. The wise response. Now, the fact is, this is an enormous topic. It's strongly debated, and we can't possibly get to the bottom of it all in one half-hour sermon or one short little book. But I'm convinced that with an open Bible in our hands and a commitment to the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts, it entails a prudent response to all things green, which avoids both the panic on the one hand and the passivity on the other hand. Now, maybe you need a little bit more convincing of that. You've got a niggling feeling, just kind of, you're not going to say it, but somewhere you sense, look, okay, I'll spot of recycling, fair game. I'll cycle to lectures or I'll cycle to work rather than drive, fine. But Dave, look, surely the only thing that really matters is evangelism and sharing the gospel. All this talk of climate change and carbon footprints and saving the planet is one big distraction. It's like playing the violin on the Titanic. Spiritual disaster is coming to the world and people need to get to the lifeboat. Ever heard that kind of argument? Ever made that kind of argument? For me, I think it's a yes and a yes. And it's a strong argument. I I feel the force of it. People do desperately need to be saved. And we uniquely have been given a message to share with them that they may be saved. And it's so easy to be knocked from that focus, that priority, that task ahead of us. Now, there are lots of ways to engage with that argument. But perhaps uh, most importantly, I think the Bible itself does not teach that the only thing that really matters is evangelism. And uh, there's no chapter or verse that says so, and we could turn to lots of different places that make that case, but we're just going to consider one place. You see, there was a time in ancient history when disaster was coming, and uh, people needed to get to the lifeboat. If they didn't, they were dead. They were lost forevermore, quite literally. And if you haven't already clocked this, I'm, of course, thinking of right at the start of the Bible, the flood, Genesis 6 to 8, and Noah's famous ark. Now, here's the question. If the only thing that matters is evangelism, quote-unquote, implication, God is really, really only concerned about saving souls for eternity, having been lost otherwise. Only he wants to save individual human beings. Question, why does God ask Noah to make the ark big? I mean, seriously, like, why go to all the effort of making room for the pandas? And the elephants, and the giraffe, and the cattle, and so on and so forth. They're like, why why not simply settle for an eight-person dinghy? For Mr. and Mrs. Noah, 
their three sons and their three daughters-in-law. Seriously, why not? And when I first clocked that, I thought, well, how striking this is. At the start of the Bible, in what becomes a bit of a paradigm for what God is going to do with his world, as per the two Peter 3 reference, a, a picture of salvation and judgment coming at the end of history one day, the Lord is concerned about lost human beings. Yes, absolutely. But he's concerned for more than just lost human beings. God has a heart for his world. A heart for his world. Which means, so should we. It's not a panicked response. It's not a passive response. What I'd suggest is a biblically prudent, wise, cautious, considered response to the issue of the environment. So what we're going to do is we're going to ransack the scriptures and see what do you have to say, Lord, to us about this huge topic. And we're going to see that this is God's world entrusted to us, damaged by sin, and it's renewed by Christ. Okay, that's the big message of our, our sermon tonight. This is God's world entrusted to us, damaged by sin, renewed by Christ. So you can all leave now if you want to go. But if you've got another 20 minutes, we can work through that line by line and see how the scriptures convince us of it and try and apply it a bit as we go. So point one, this is God's world. From Genesis 1 onwards, the Bible makes it crystal clear. The blue planet is God's planet. It's God's world. Genesis 1, God speaks and it is so. God brings order from chaos, something from nothing. Behold, cheetahs that can go from naught to 40 miles an hour in three strides. Behold, the emperor penguin that can dive deeper than the Empire State Building. Behold, more stars in the sky than human words have ever been spoken. If your reaction is, whoa, well, then that is what we're to feel when we read Genesis 1. The refrain throughout the book, throughout the chapter, God saw all he had made and it was good. It was good. It was very good. In the beginning, God's creation was perfect. Perfect in form, perfect in function. The trees in the Garden of Eden, we're told, were good for food and were pleasing to the eye. So both aesthetically and functionally good, as they were designed to be. It fitted together and because God made it all, he owns it all. We've had read already uh, this evening, Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Planet earth, in other words, is God's intellectual property. He alone owns the rights to this stunning world that we are part of. This is God's world. So let's come back to our responses to the environment. On the one hand, remembering that this is God's world should challenge the panicked response. The Great Barrier Reef, the Amazonian rainforest, the, the endangered armor leopard. Yeah, they're, they're valuable things in God's world. They're vulnerable things in God's world, but they're not ultimate things in God's world. They are created things in God's world. They're the creation. He's the creator. And therefore, those of us who kind of err towards that panicked response need to be careful not to overvalue creation. And uh, 
Though I say it, worship created things rather than the creator who is forever praised our men, Romans 1. And very often it's not impossible for those who lean towards that panic response to, dare I say, idolize planet Earth just a little. But on the other hand, remembering that this is God's world is a challenge to those of us who err more to the passive response too. That merely kind of shrugs its shoulders at any concern about the environment. You see, we're not to be laissez-faire about microplastics in the sea or habitat destruction. Love for God demands that I take his handiwork seriously and I treat it with the dignity that it deserves. But it's more than that. I have already mentioned I have four kids. and When I take an interest in what they bring to me, whether that's a Lego model or an animal drawing or some modern calligraphy or some modular origami, yes, that happens, each different creation reveals a different thing about their creator. And the same is true of God. The heavens declare the glory of God, we read in Psalm 19, verse 1. The skies proclaim the works of his hand, which means there are aspects to God's character in his God, in his good providence for us, that we'll only really grasp when we listen to the voice of the hymn of creation that declares that about God. Question, why did God make galaxies and mountains and donkeys, and trees. He made it all to teach us about himself. Creation sings the Father's song, we sing. And so, thought experiment, if lions tragically became extinct, and God has in his providence described himself to us, his people, in lion-like terms, as he does in Amos chapter 1, and the uh, Revelation chapter 5, then there will be aspects to God's character that will now forever not quite be known. Because what is a lion that the lion would roar? Say, ferocity at sin or power to save. This is God's world. It all reveals truths about him. Point one is God's world entrusted to us. Entrusted to us. We've got to have a quote from a C.S. Lewis, this is Prince Caspian, and uh, if you don't know Prince Caspian, I think it's one of my son's favorite uh, Narnia stories. Uh, Truffle Hunter the Badger uh, is reflecting on the damage that has taken place within Narnia, and I definitely think the name Truffle Hunter needs to come back, so uh, uh, all sorts of names are coming back, but if de- I dare you. Let's just say I dare you. Uh, and uh, damage has been taking place in Narnia since the, uh, the, the four humans have left Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, and the Tumarines have been in. And Truffle Hunter is explaining to two skeptical dwarves called Trumpkin and uh, Nickerbrick. So o- other options if you're after, after them. Uh, how amazing is that Truffle Hunter has found Prince Caspian, another human being in the woods. And this is what Truffle Hunter says. This is the true king of Narnia. And we beasts remember, even if dwarves forget, that Narnia was never right except when a son of Adam was king. It's not men's country, but it's a country for a man to be a king of. Why, bless us all, wasn't the high king Peter a man? And what's true of Narnia is true of our world. It's not men's country, but it's a country for a man, woman, to be kings and queens of. 
kings and queens of Narnia. This is God's world. Yes, it's not our world, our planet. It's God's, but in his design, his world is what he has delegated to us. He wants us, those made in his image, to be kings and queens over. Human beings are to rule over this world under his sovereign rule. This is God's world entrusted to us. In the language of Genesis 1.28, to be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Very familiar words they are. But what a responsibility. What an, what an entrustment to us. It's one thing for, for me to entrust my house to you. And uh, last time I had a sabbatical, a bit like Paul has just had, and as a family, we entrusted our house to some friends who stayed in our house for seven weeks. That's one thing. But God has entrusted the world to us. Have a world to look after. I'll be back, but have a world. What a, what a responsibility we have got. That's precisely what he's done. This is how Psalm 8 describes the privilege and the responsibility. What is man that you're mindful of him? You've made them a little lower than the angels, we, sat, we said responsibly at the start. Crowned with glory and honor, you've made them rulers over the works of your hands. You've put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the world, the birds of the sky, the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. This is God's world entrusted to us. Human beings are to be chief stewards or head gardeners of a royal garden that has been given to us to care for by the king. And we're to cultivate his garden. And we're to bring order from the chaos within the garden and bear fruit in every good work in his garden. And that means it's a calling not either to neglect the garden, implication the untouched by human hands land is the perfect land, which is sometimes the, 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 the sense that you get from those on the, passive, uh, the, the panicked end of the spectrum. Hands off human beings, you're only going to ruin it, kind of thing. But neither is it an implication, uh, uh, an invitation for us to pave paradise and put up a parking lot, to quote uh, Joni Mitchell, which uh, maybe those of us who are more passive about environmental concerns say, well, who cares, really? We can just do what we like with it. No, we can't. We're to steward it well and wisely. Now, in the Old Testament, there are actually quite a lot of examples of good stewardship of the land that God has given. And in, uh, in the book of Leviticus, we see some instructions that the Old Testament people of God were given as they had the land. And in their agricultural laws embedded in the law, one year in every seven, the Israelites were to give the land a Sabbath rest, a breather, where there was no sowing and no reaping and no pruning. And the land just had a bit of, a, bit of time off. And then once... Every seven times seven years, the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, there was a Sabbath rest, an uber Sabbath rest, and the, the land was shared around the people, so everyone had what they needed. A lovely picture of good stewardship of creation. This is God's world entrusted to us, damaged by sin. Of course, we don't live in the world of Genesis 1 and 2, but the world of Genesis 3 and the sad world of sin and heartache and death that we only know too well. And maybe some of us in the room know more than others. Maybe only we know the pain we're carrying to church today. Fundamentally, that sin has affected humanity's vertical relationship with God. It's been mortally wounded 
urgently, desperately in need of repair. The Titanic has been hit, and uh, we've got to get to a lifeboat. And we've got to get as many people to a lifeboat as we possibly can. We mustn't forget, in all our discussion about climate change and in creation care, we can't forget those 10 million Bangladeshis in that one-meter contour, so vulnerable that they are. Love for neighbor demands that we take seriously the plight of people around the world. We've already prayed for those in India who are facing scorching heats. Uh, and sure, among all the responses we could, we could have as we think about the environment, we must consider sharing the gospel a high priority, particularly for those who are so vulnerable to the changing climate. But the fact is, the Bible maintains that sin doesn't just affect human beings, it affects everything. It's like a hideous, metastasizing cancer that is so toxic and virulent, it has worked its way, not just in human beings, but out into the wide world. The whole entire natural world is affected by sin, not just the human beings within it. And that is seen all over the Bible. The fallout from the fall, we see it in Genesis 3, Thorns, thistles growing in the water as a result of human sin. Childbearing is much harder downstream of the fall. But it's powerfully reiterated in Romans 8. I've got a few verses on the screen. Romans 8 verse 20. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Later on we read of creation's bondage to decay. We talk about the whole creation groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. It's as if a brick has been hurled at a window and shards of glass have shattered all over the world as a result of that one human sin and the the resultant sin that takes place in our world downstream. How does God feel about his world? Is he passive to the plight of creation? Is he ambivalent to the brokenness in his blue planet? Does he just shrug his shoulders and focus all his attention solely on saving individuals for eternity? He loves to save. In the old covenant, people of God, in the book of Jeremiah, the Lord shares how he mourns over the brokenness of his creation. Jeremiah 9 verse 10, I will weep and wail for the mountains. And take up a lament concerning the wilderness, grasslands. They are desolate and untraveled. And the lowing of cattle is not heard. The birds have all fled. The animals have gone. Then Jeremiah asked the Lord, why the collapsing habitat all over? The Lord's reply, it's because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them. They have not obeyed me or followed my law. Now, we've got to be careful when we apply Old Testament law to new covenant uh, believers this side of Christ. But Romans 8 makes it really, really clear that the Bible is a lot less shy about joining the dots between human behavior and the fate of the planet and what has taken place in this world than some of us tend to be. Now, someone who is absolutely not nervous about joining the dots between human behavior and the fate of the planet is Sir David Attenborough, the leading environmentalist. And for the last, what, Hundred years, it seems, he has been saying things like what he said at the start of Planet Earth 2, which we're big fans on, fans of in our house. We are at a unique stage in our history. Never before have we had such an awareness of what we're doing to the planet. And never before have we had the power to do something about that. 
Surely we have a responsibility to care for our blue planet, the future of humanity, and indeed all life on Earth now depends on us. No pressure. Well, we can agree with quite a lot of what Sir David says in that quote, but I have to say the Bible has a different conclusion, picture of the future than David seems to suggest. The world, it's God's world, it's entrusted to us, damaged by sin, renewed by Christ, which is our fourth point, which we'll spend a bit of time on before we close. Praise God, sin and heartache and brokenness and death do not have the last word in God's world. Great news, especially if you're struggling and you're feeling broken here this evening. In the language of Romans 8, one day the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Now, I'm sure many of us are familiar with some of the great Old Testament promises about the coming of the Messiah. Of course, Genesis 3.15, the promise of a serpent crusher, stamp on the head of God's enemy, Satan. That's the pointing forward to the coming of Christ. But hot on the heels of Genesis 3 is Genesis 8, and another promise that often we forget. This promise given to Noah straight after the flood. This is what uh, the Lord says. Never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. The rhythms of life will endure. Season will follow season. Day will follow night. And this promise of God's round-the-clock protection has no expiry date. Genesis chapter 9, we get the promise of the rainbow. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, God says, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant. Everlasting covenant, promise, commitment between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. Do you know that? That God has made a promise, not just between God and human beings, but God and every creature on earth. The climate may well be changing, drastically even. But don't expect that to result in a global extinction anytime soon. God has promised to be in charge of his world. And he alone holds the destiny of his world in the palms of his hands. And for as long as he wants it to endure, it'll endure. You can take his word for it. But God isn't just in the business of sustaining his world. He is that, praise him. He's also in the business of renewing it. Now, the firing gun of the great renewal project of God's world was really, truly sounded at the coming of Jesus. A second Adam walked the earth. The true king of Narnia appeared. And very few things affirm the significance and the wonder and the, the, the integrity and the, the goodness and value of creation than the bodily incarnation of Jesus, the bodily ministry of Jesus, very physical, the very physical death on the cross that he endured, and the very physical embodied literal resurrection from the dead the third day. Colossians 1 assures us that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. He's the, the heir to the throne of the world. For in him, all things were created. All things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Friends, ultimately, the, the reason day follows night 
is because of Jesus. The reason summers are hot and winters are cold is because of Jesus. The falling of a sparrow, the spinning of a planet, the survival of a planet because of Jesus, because of Jesus, because of him. In him it all holds together and therefore the restoration and renewal of a planet will be because of Jesus too. That's the great Christian hope. Very little time to look at it, but in 1 Corinthians 15, the story of the resurrected Jesus will become the story of the resurrected people of God and his world. Author Ian K.A. Smith reflects on Christ's coming, the return of the King. Jesus' return to earth is the focus of the Christian's hope. And this return will not just be for a visit to pick us up and take us home to heaven. He is coming to stay. The new Jerusalem will descend to earth and we will be at home with Jesus on earth, renewed and restored. The Bible suggests there'll be both radical discontinuity between this world and the the life of the world to come, the other side of the return of Christ, and wonderful, remarkable continuity too. Just as there was with Jesus, this side of the grave to the other side of the grave, it was the same Jesus that went in and came out. It wasn't a brand new Jesus that popped into existence. It was that Jesus with the scars. Or so too, a gloriously resurrected Jesus, renewed and restored. That's the promise of this world one day. The royal garden of planet Earth that we've been entrusted over. It might be looking forward to a massive overhaul on the return of the king. We can't wait for that day. No more pain or brokenness or tears. Death. Looking forward to that day. That doesn't mean that we trash it now. One day we will steward it perfectly forevermore. Get in the habit now. And knowing that the king is on his way back to perfect the job gives us license, surely, to throw ourselves into works and labors for him that cut with that grain, for no labor in the Lord is in vain. Remember that quote from David Attenborough a moment ago. We are at a unique stage in our history always. Never before have we had such an awareness of what we're doing to the planet. Yes. And never before have we had the power to do something about that. Yeah. Surely we have a responsibility to care for our blue planet. Absolutely. The future of humanity and indeed all life on earth now depends on us. Not so much, David. So near and yet so far. You see, the Bible makes it crystal clear. This is God's world, entrusted to us, damaged by sin, renewed by Christ. And so we need to be very wary of the panicked response that suggests it's within our power to save the planet. It really isn't. Or the passive response that shirks all responsibility to be a wise steward of the world that God has given to us for a season. We mustn't instead... We're to serve our risen, reigning, returning king. Throw ourselves into serving him here where he has placed us, tending the royal garden under his rule. We roll up our sleeves with our studies and our sharing our faith and our scientific endeavor and our stewardship of his world. Absolutely. And then we go to sleep at night, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ to be the saviour of the world. We don't have to carry the weight 
of the world on our shoulders, that job's already taken. Let's have a moment of quietness, and then I'll pray. We praise you, King Jesus, our returning King. We praise you that this is your world. Help us to be wise stewards within your world. Forgive us for the times when we've either idolized this world or we've neglected our responsibility over this world. Help us, Lord, to serve you as we serve this blue planet you've endowed to us for a season. Help us to be committed to serving and stewarding and sharing the hope of the gospel as we wait for the return of the King. Lord Jesus Christ, we can't wait to see you. We can't wait to see what you're going to do with this world when you renew it and restore it finally and fully. Help us to throw ourselves into labours for you while we wait. We pray in Jesus' name.